But if you're open, your Bibles are already open to John chapter 12, I want you to stay there. And if not, love you to open your Bible or turn your Bible on, whichever way you're going to do that. And we're going to spend a few minutes here now this morning looking at the very end of John chapter 12 as we bring the first half of this gospel to its conclusion. Again, I want to say a warm welcome to all of you and to everybody online. Indeed, it is a wonderful time for us to display our patience and our faithfulness and our hope in Jesus Christ and the gospel and circumstances, even when they're not as we would choose them. So today I want to ask you about your passion. If you've seen what Debbie posted online or if you've got a bulletin or anything like that, you'll notice that the title of my sermon is Finding Your Passion in Jesus' Passion. So what I want to ask you about this morning is what indeed are you passionate about? And what I mean by that is what drives you, or rather who drives you, where do your thoughts go? What do you think about quickest or most often or with the most emotion? Who do you dream about? And I mean right now, in the here and now, in January 31st of 2021, how many of you are thinking about or you're passionate about your spouse or your kids, about your mom or your dad? about your grandkids. For many of you, maybe you're passionate about a certain hobby. You're passionate about your job or your education. Some of you, I think, are passionate about politics. It seems to be a very important thing to be passionate about these days. Many are passionate about money or investments. Some are even passionate now about a holiday or when can I go on a holiday or where can I go on a holiday. I have been accused of being maybe too passionate about food. And uh, some of us are passionate about food, especially barbecue. But you can never be too passionate about barbecue. Some of us, oh, I got an amen there. I heard that. That was great. Um, some of us, many are passionate about sports, entertainment, TV shows, movies, movie franchises. But maybe the most accurate question when we ask this is what would others say you're passionate about. It's one thing for you to tell me or me to tell you what I'm passionate about, but what would other people say you're passionate about? If I were to look at your social media presence, what does it say about your passion? If I talked to your spouse or to your parents or to your kids or your boss or your employees or your co-workers or your fellow students... If I talk to your parents, your neighbor, and ask them what makes you tick, what makes you get out of bed in the morning, what drives you? But let me ask you this. What do you think Jesus Christ was passionate about? I mean, if you got asked that question, if somebody asked you this afternoon, you went to church today? Yeah, I went to church. You read a Bible? Yeah, I read a Bible so why'd you do that? Well, I, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, why? And who did, Well, what was Jesus passionate about? What was Jesus all about? What, what drove Jesus? And actually, if you were listening to Emma when she read John chapter 12, 44 to 50, you can actually get John, the beloved disciple's perspective about what Jesus was passionate about. Jesus' last words have been recorded back in John chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, in which then it says, after that, he hid himself from public view. And so verses 45 to 50 are John's 
summary of Jesus' teaching. So when you look at it, he's telling you and me. This is John saying, look, I want you to realize I've spent the first half of this gospel explaining to you who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, how he came, why he came. And oh, by the way, I've also showed you in these conversations with Christ how people reacted. This is basically his purpose statement summary before his final purpose statement that I will read again in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31 in just a few minutes. But up to this point in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, you've had five, or sorry, seven signs. You've had five I am statements. Jesus has healed people. He's preached. He's been attacked. He's been maligned and accused. He's spoken to the downcast and to the upstanding. And here on the last day of January in the first month of 2021, I want you to realize every one of you, male and female, young and old, every one of you is represented not only here in this room, but represented in John chapter 1 to 12. The book of signs is now coming to an end. And when I preach again, starting in John chapter 13, all the way through 21, that is called the book of Jesus' passion. John's gospel is divided in two. John 1 to 12 is the book of signs. John chapter 13 to 21 is the book of passion. Now, when I say to you about the passion of the Christ, most of you are probably thinking about the movie that was directed by Mel Gibson. And based on some of the smiles I'm getting, that's exactly where you went. See, often when we hear about the passion of the Christ, we think about Christ's resurrection or his crucifixion and his resurrection. And indeed, Jesus was very passionate in those times. But I think there was more to Jesus than just his crucifixion and his resurrection. What drove him? What motivated him to be willing to be crucified? See, the Apostle John finishes this book of signs, this recap, and says, here it is. This is what Jesus was passionate about. This is what drove him. Verses 44 to 50 tell us why Jesus came, what he came to do, and what's at stake for the world. And so that by the time you get to the end of this chapter, John's purpose statement is now made clear. Remember in John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John included seven specifically chosen ones. But these, these seven are written so that you may believe, and here it is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, for many of you in this room and a lot of you watching online, you'll be like, hey, Steve, that's great, man, a good evangelistic sermon. That's great. Preach to the lost. No, no, no. I'm asking you as Christians, what are you passionate about? I'm asking what drives you, what motivates you, what is of importance to you? Because you see, what's more is that everyone in this passage, and I mean every one of us in this room and online, every one of us is in one of two camps. You either believe and respond to this claim in John chapter 12, 44 to 50, or you are part of a group that chooses to reject this message. And I would submit, when you reject this message, you embrace a hopelessness in life. 
But I also believe that for every Christian in this room, every Christian online, this passage of John is a, a way of both asking us and telling us, is this your passion? Are you passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about? And one of the ways you know is do you love, trust, and follow Christ? Do you want to be like him? Do you want to be like him? So I'm asking us all as we walk through this this morning to observe and interpret and apply. And I want you to be honest. Don't, don't pretend. Don't be pretentious. Don't be religious. Be honest about your passions. And see if they align with Jesus' passions. So I first want you to notice with me this. If you want to take notes in verses 44, 45, and 46... Jesus passionately calls people to believe. He passionately calls people. If you look in the passage, it begins in verse, and Jesus cried out and said. He wasn't passive. He was passionate. He cries out this message. Jesus was so passionate about why he came, he literally cried it out. All through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see his passions now, let me ask you, put yourself back there 2,000 years. What do you think it would have been like to hear and watch Jesus talk and preach and do the things he did? Have you ever noticed that one of the great events in Jesus' life happened twice where he goes into the temple and he actually shows and displays his authority where he takes a whip and he drives out the money changers and he flips over the tables and he, he, he basically authoritatively decries what they had turned the temple into. What do you think that would have been like to watch, to hear, to listen to? Or back in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus cries out, Come to me, all ye who are thirsty. He preached and he taught and he pleaded and he called and he begged and he proclaimed. He was emotional. He was attached. He, he was always invested. He was passionate. And John wants you and I to see and know and hear what drove Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew tells us that Jesus was compassionate when he looked on the people as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 11... The only time in all of the Gospels where Jesus Christ describes himself, tells you, this is my emotional heart. He says, I am gentle and lowly. I'm concerned about you. So he's compassionate. He's gentle. He's lowly. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that parents were able to bring their kids to Jesus. And kids loved to be held by him. And they, J Jesus would pray over them and bless them. So he was approachable. And then Luke reminds us that after those two blind men on the road from Jericho were healed, that he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. The idea was that Jesus was resolute. So we have a compassionate gentle, lowly, approachable, resolute God in the flesh. And this is exactly what John wants you and I to see. Jesus is passionately calling people to believe in him because he is the way. Again, this expression, notice it in the very beginning of verse 44. And Jesus cried out. Do you realize only five times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do you read about this? Twice... 
is in the passion on the cross. Twice, Jesus will cry out. But then there's three other times. I've already mentioned one in John chapter 7. He cries out for the people to come to him and find satisfaction. Now, listen to me, especially you young people and young adults. As you're trying to figure out what will make you happy, what will make you important, what will make you belong, what will give you satisfaction... Don't you find it ironic that one of the most famous rock bands of all time in the Rolling Stones would write, I can't get no satisfaction? And yet here is Jesus calling to people saying, come to me and I will satisfy you. I will satisfy you. In John chapter 11, he cried out for Lazarus to come forth from the tomb. Four days dead. And interestingly, again, the passionate, emotional Jesus, in that passage of John 11, it says that Jesus wept. He cried. He looked at the state of humanity. He looked into the faces of Mary and Martha. He saw the grief and the sorrow. He saw the pain. And if you've thought about that at all in the world that you live in with the coronavirus of the last year and a bit, and how many nursing homes and people have been ravaged, there's one nursing home right in Barrie, Ontario, where over 50 or 60% of the residents have died. Can you imagine the sorrow? The pain, and so Jesus doesn't weep because he's powerless. He weeps because he sees the powerlessness of us, of humanity. We can't stop death. And so then he cries out and he says, Lazarus, come forth because he was passionate for them to see that he could change what you and I can't. He could do what you and I can't. So John wants you and I to see in these very first verses that Jesus is passionate about the gospel. And I want you to see something because it's very important. Look at these first, few, these first few verses. Jesus isn't crying out because people won't believe. Jesus is crying out to tell people why they should believe. See, Jesus isn't angry. He's not ticked off. He's not exasperated. I want you to realize that's a massive thing for you and I as believers to understand in a world with COVID and restrictions, with the political climate in our world today, with the social media poison all around us. Jesus doesn't yell at the world with condescension. Jesus doesn't mock the world. He doesn't try to win arguments or act superior. Jesus pleads. He cries out. Look at it again. Look at verses 44 and 45 and 46. He cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So why? So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So again, watch this now. Jesus is basically saying three things. I speak for God. I reveal God. And I light the way to God. That's what he's basically telling you and I. And I'm telling you, more than ever, on this last day of January in 2021, when I look at so many of your faces, young and old, and the journey and life experiences you're walking through and the circumstances of your life, you need to realize, you need to make a decision this morning. Do you believe that Jesus passionately pleads to you and says, I will tell you about God. I will reveal God to you. I'm the way that you can get to God. He pleads with the world. 
You remember that in the Gospels three times, God the Father speaks from heaven. He does it at Jesus' baptism. He does it at Jesus' transfiguration. And again, here in John chapter 12, at his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, basically three times, God the Father announces to the world, I love my son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. He is glorified by Jesus. And so Jesus passionately speaks for God. Remember back in John chapter 9 when he healed the man born blind and everybody wondered who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither, but that you would know that I am God. And he heals him. A miracle that had never been done in human history and has never been done since. A man born blind, given his sight. When he called out to Lazarus out of that grave, when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, when demons were trembled before him and had to do whatever he said. Do you remember even when he preached that famous sermon on the mount? Do you remember what was said at the end of it? This is what Matthew says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, God, Jesus comes and pleads with you to believe the gospel, not because he's angry, not because he wants to win an argument, not because he wants you to to feel like he's the superior one. He wants you to realize he speaks for God and God is good and God is kind and generous and holy and he would never lie to you. So he wants you to see this. So Jesus pleads with us to believe that he speaks for God because he reveals God to us. Now again... I think I'm looking out and maybe one or two of you, maybe, actually there's a few dudes over here I don't know well, but see, I tried to be as dressed up as good as you guys are. Yeah. But I do know this, whether I know you really, really well or I've barely met you, I know that every single person in this room and every one of you online has at some point in your life asked these questions. What is God really like? And the truth is, we all wonder, does God really care for me? Think about it. There's 8 billion people on this planet. 8 billion. And here you and I are living our little life on this little island, in this little city. And it's very easy for us to say, does God care and know that I exist? Does God care and does it matter that I am here? Does my life mean something? And I want you to realize, every one of you, that Satan and the world wants you to believe that God doesn't care. They want you to believe that he doesn't exist or he's too busy for you. They want you to believe that your life will only matter by what you do in the here and now. But Jesus comes and passionately says, I came to show you God. That's why Paul told the Corinthians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you'll study Jesus, you'll know God. And watch this now. Jesus says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, the Greek here means, when he says the word see here, in our English, it's where we get our word for theory. Or where we get the word for theorize. And this is huge for you and I in 2021. For we might say... Well, it's great that Jesus came along in the first century and said, if you see me, then you see God. But that doesn't help me because Jesus isn't here. 
Well, what you really need to realize, John is telling us, if you study Jesus, if you learn of Jesus, then you will realize that you will know God. That's why Jesus said what he did in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, and what? Learn of me. Learn from me. If you want to know God's love, study God's word and see how Jesus loved. If you want to know God's wisdom or his holiness or his power or whatever you want to know about God, learn from Jesus. And so what does that mean practically? Do you realize that when God first created Adam and Eve, the original intention of humanity was that we would be the perfect reflectors of God? Every one of us Our original intent was that we would display God. I once heard Tim Challies preach a sermon how God is the original idol maker. And what he means by that is, do you ever realize God created us with eyes that can see and ears that can hear and mouths that can speak. And he created us and we are supposed to worship him, adore him, sing to him. And yet in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, We have started to create idols of our own. We carve them out of our own hands or we chase things. And they have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear and mouths that can't. So we create them and then we bow down to them. This is how perverse sin is. And this is what Jesus is exposing. He says, look at me and I will show you the way. Jesus doesn't just show you God. He shows you what it actually means to be human. He shows you how to love and care and give and share and communicate and be in unity. And by the way, I would say in 2021 more than ever, the whole world is looking for this. I don't think in all of my lifetime I have ever been more aware of a chaotic world that's literally turned on itself. And yet it doesn't matter who you speak to, male or female, young or old, or what their political bend, or their outlike, or their cultural bend, or anything like that. They will all say to some level, I am looking for peace and happiness and satisfaction and security and safety. The world is looking at it and Jesus is saying, I am the one that can give you this. Why do you keep chasing after stuff that won't satisfy? Come to me. So let me ask you. Have you? Will you? I know the world is a scary place right now, especially for those of you that are young. But I want you to realize that Jesus is passionate for you. He's never going to leave you. He'll speak for God to you. He'll reveal God to you. He'll light your way to God. And especially those of you in this younger generation, I want you to realize you have an amazing opportunity because now more than ever, with all of the confusion and all the chaos, if you will choose to trust God and lean into Jesus and follow him and be brave about it, you will stand out more than ever in a long time. And I believe God will do amazing things with you. Oh, and by the way, for those of you that are my age and up, that's also true for us too. Will we trust God and follow him? Now, notice next that Jesus passionately warns people not to reject him. 
Jesus passionately warns people not to forget to reject him. And he does this in verses 46, 47, and 48. Now, I want you to stand back for a minute and think about the world. Well, let's call a spade a spade and be honest, all right? I've tried to do that for a little bit. I want you to think about all the challenges we're facing here in 2021. Well, there's the politics. We have an election here in our own province. The rumor is that we'll probably be facing an election in Canada in the next weeks or a couple of months. We've got all of the COVID stuff. We've got the sexual revolution of our culture in regards to sexual identity, where everybody now worships your sexuality more than you worship anything else. There's wars and rumors of wars. We hear about it every day. There's women issues. There's toxic masculinity, human trafficking. There's the environment. There's food shortages and food insecurity. There's racism and inequality. There's the effect of mental illness. There's drugs. There's problem facing parents and marriage and kids. Kids that are trying to grow up in a world that promises everything but seems more and more to take. This is the world we live in. And the temptation right now is to yell out, where is God? Where is God in all this? Where is peace? Why can't I be happy? Does God care? Why doesn't God just fix all of this? And John chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus says, listen to me. Because he passionately tells us God does care. God does have a plan. Because he says, God sent me. To you, the giver of grace, the provider of mercy. I'm the one that will show you God and speak for God and light the way to God. And I will light the way through the chaos and the confusion. And I'll offer you salvation, which, by the way, is hope and forgiveness and love and purpose and strength and belonging. Just look again at verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. That is not the way you would normally think this sentence should go. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, tone is everything. Tone is everything. What do you imagine Jesus' tone is when John writes this? If he's passionate for the gospel and he's passionate for God's people or that we won't reject this gospel. I love the way Richard Phillips writes this. He goes, this is not a tone of vindictive anger but of frustrated goodwill. This is Jesus going, why won't you trust me? Now, if you are a parent or a grandparent and you've gone through those transitions with your kids from when they're 12 years old into the teen years, when they go from being 18 and 19 into 20, when they graduate high school, going to university, when they leave the university and they go to make those first career choices, and they're going through these things, or they're going through that first crush or that first relationship, and they're making all these major decisions, and they finally come to you and say, Mom and Dad, watch your advice. And you give them advice, and they go, Thank you very much, and then go do the exact opposite of the advice you've given them. Can I get a witness? Right? <laughs> all right? Have you not experienced where you have pleaded with your children? Why won't you trust me? I would never lie to you. I would never try to harm you. I would never want, not want what's best for you. And so here is Jesus, the God of the universe, representing God in the flesh. And he says, why won't you trust me? I would never lie to you. I would never manipulate you. I would never try to bait and switch you. Jesus doesn't get sinfully angry. He's never impatient. 
He doesn't have this why bother type attitude that we can all have and have experienced. Jesus does, though, love us enough to say, I am passionate enough that I will always tell you the truth. And these two verses mean that Jesus came at the first advent as a savior, not a judge. He didn't come to inflict punishment, but to provide mercy. He came to provide salvation for all the world so that anyone in the world might be saved. But no one gets any benefit from this salvation except if you believe. You see, the true key to this passage in this sentence in 47 and 48 is the contrast between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. You see, the first time Jesus came, he came to set up a throne of grace. The second time, he will set up a throne of his holiness. That's why in John 3.17, everybody loves John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But that John 3.17 says, God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If it were lawful to coin a word here about this expression, Jesus basically says, I came into the world so that the world could be savable. I came so that you could know me. And so that verse 47 isn't Jesus denying that he's a judge. In Matthew 25, Jesus clearly says that he will judge. Paul told Timothy that he, Jesus, is the judge of the living and the dead. The book of Revelation clearly tells us that Jesus is the judge of all things. So what Jesus is doing here is passionately pointing out that if you reject him, it does lead to condemnation. But it was not for condemnation that he came. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. And so verse 48 is meant to be seen in you reject me. If you won't receive my words, then my words that I have spoken will judge you. So everybody needs to realize unbelief to not believe in Jesus is not an unwillingness to say, I don't agree with these things you're saying. What Jesus makes crystal clear is that unbelief is a flat refusal to listen to him and acknowledge his claims. If you reject me, that is, you refuse to listen to me, then his very words of love and mercy and grace will be what judges you. Unbelief is not trusting Jesus And it faces certain judgment by the everlasting truth that Jesus proclaimed that he was given by the Father. The one who rejects me, notice, is connected to refusing to listen. Which means the judgment will not be a matter that God's in a bad mood or that he's got favorites. But God needs to do what God has to do because he's holy and righteous. And so, catch this now. If Jesus was passionate about this, then what should we learn from this? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great king's doctor in England, he said, from the beginning to end of the Bible, here's the message. It is that there is going to be an end to the world. And that at the end of the world, who we trust and what we followed matters. The Christ of God will come back into this world and he will return as its holy judge. The world is under judgment and it's going to perish. And all that is opposed to God is going to be judged and is going to be destroyed. 
There is a day coming when an astonished humanity is going to hear the cry, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. That's Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And by the way, this is why I'm so passionate about this myself. Satan wants you to believe this. He wants you to believe that this life is all you have. He wants you to believe just going to live and let live. And young adults, you're learning about this. If some of you with Adam and David in that book by Jared Wilson about the gospel according to Satan, he wants you to believe that all you have is this life now. By the way, Satan doesn't care if you're religious. He's not at all bothered. Go to church, dress up nicely, do a few things, have a few platitudes, do a few nice things. He is not at all concerned if you want to be religious, play a part, feel good about yourself, as long as you don't listen to or trust in Jesus. And that's why Jesus makes it very clear. You and I are responsible for our decisions. Only God can save. You can't save yourself. But you and I are responsible for our reaction to Jesus. A.W. Pink says, Every man and woman who hears the gospel ought to believe in Christ. And those who do not will yet be punished for their unbelief. So Jesus passionately pleads with you, not just to hear him, but to listen to him, to trust him. He is the one who speaks for God and reveals God and lights the way to God. He is the one who loves you. By the way, he's the one who's lived for you. He's paid the price. So don't reject him. Church, Calvary, here and online, Jesus pleads with you. Don't trust yourself. Don't assume on your church or religion. Don't think you're going to live forever. Don't think you can just put it off. Jesus cries out to every one of us here today, listen to me. Because finally, in verses 49 and 50, Jesus passionately trusts in God's glorious plan. I want you to realize, and let me say this, especially online, as I stand before you here in St. John's, Newfoundland, as the lead elder of this church, that the gospel is the most inclusive offer made to humanity. Everybody, all 8 billion human souls of planet Earth, can hear this invitation, come to Jesus. But I want you to also know that it is also the most exclusive offer ever made because you can only come through Jesus. Later on in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So listen to me now, especially those of you that are young and you're entering university, you're entering into your careers, or entering into marriage. Listen to me. Every way you want to live is a way to get to God. You can live whatever way you want, and you will get to God as judge. There's only one way to get to God as Father, and that's through Jesus Christ, the one who speaks for God and shows us God and lights the way to God. So it is not what the postmodern world is telling you. Live your truth. As long as you don't hurt somebody, live however the way you want. That's a very nice idea, and yet those of you that are living this out know it doesn't work. There is only one way to God as Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's why it's not extreme for Jesus to call for faith in him as the Son of God and Savior. Jesus asked and demanded nothing more than God the Father authorized him to ask and demand. That's why he does it. Realize that God has authorized him to call us to faith. And this is why Jesus says what he does in verse 49. And so let me ask you, does it bother you that Christianity insists that salvation can only come through Jesus? 
That's why Paul says what he does in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name given among men where you can be saved but the name of Jesus. Richard uh, Phillips challenges again. He says, to debate too often, we debate matters of truth and morality in accordance with the world's standards. So we argue against abortion, and some Christians try to show the economic value of an increased birth rate. We argue about sexual ethics and identity. We present the sociological and the psychological argument. But these arguments, even when true, lack authority. Christians should instead speak forth the word of God unashamedly, pointing out the teaching of the Holy Scripture, which comes with the authority of God himself. That's what Jesus said in, in verse 49. I have only spoken what the Father told me I had authority to speak. So guys, listen, when you are presenting the gospel, when someone asks you why you're a Christian or why you go to church or why you do what you do or say what you say or believe what you do, can I just admonish you? Stop trying to win arguments. Stop, stop trying to just win fights. Don't get on Facebook and argue with people. Don't get on Twitter and just tweet back and forth. Rather, love people because Jesus loves you. Patiently display the kindness of God. Don't act all superior. In fact, if you actually believe that you're a sinner saved by grace, it will humble you and make you kind and gentle and patient. Jesus says, I'm offering you eternal life. And he'll later pray in John chapter 17. And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. God's word is life. It's eternal life. It's the gift of perspective on this life and the hope of life after death. It's freedom from terror that you only have this life because what you do in life isn't going your way. What do you do if you've got to deal with all the mundane of life? But Jesus offers us life now and for eternity. Everything you do counts. Even when you suffer well, it counts. When you love your wife day in and day out, it counts. When it's hard and no one notices, it counts. God does. When you study for that test, when you listen to your boss, when you forgive your parents, when you love your neighbor, when you pay your bills, when you help the hurting, when you sit by a hospital bed, when you send a kind email, when you don't yell and demand or give in to your insecurities and fight for what doesn't matter or last, that counts. That's how special God makes your life. He can command us to turn from our sin and trust him because it's the greatest offer you're ever going to receive. Let me illustrate it this way. Jesus can command us to trust him because he has shown us what it looks like to trust God. Okay? The story is told of a virtuoso, a pianist, who performed his verse concert at Carnegie Hall. Apparently, when he did it, the crowd was awed by his playing and demanded an encore. And afterward, nearly the entire audience were rising to their feet and cheering. And he was asked to go out and take a final bow, but the pianist refused. What challenged, when challenged about this, he peered between the curtains and pointed out to all those that were working in the back, a very small, unassuming man in the balcony who remained seated. He told the guys at the back, he said, do you see that one little man up there? When he stands up and applauds, then I will take my bow. But it's only one man, they replied. Well, why not take your bow until that man applauds? Of which the penis said, because that man 
is my teacher. Richard Phillips sums it up. So it was with Jesus. He was ultimately vindicated by his obedience to the will of God. And the world might hate him, and it did. It might scoff at his teaching, and it still does. But he would content himself with the applause of only one person, his heavenly father. And throughout his ministry, the father gave his applause to Jesus over and over again. And that's why Jesus says what he does in verse 50. I have come to glorify my father. And the same should be true of you and I. Oh, listen, don't go to church because you're trying to impress people. Don't do good because you want people to think better of you. I want you from the youngest of you to the oldest. Simply be like this virtuoso and say, no, no, I won't take my bow until my heavenly father says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in the joy of thy Lord. And by the way, if you will be passionate about the things Jesus was passionate about, passionate for God's gospel, passionate for God's people, passionate for God's glory, then you too will live a life, no matter how much to your point of view or everybody else's point of view, was mundane or faceless or nameless. One day, everybody here and online is going to stand before a holy, holy, holy God. And what you did in this life If you trusted him, if you followed him, he guarantees it that he will look at you and say, well done. I'm proud of you. Come, enjoy everything I have created for you and me to enjoy for eternity. And in that one moment, everything you will ever face in this life will disappear. Our postmodern world likes to make sport of nearly every failing of the church and Christians, yet the record still stands that the spread of Christianity has literally brought life, light, and freedom throughout the world. Even today, it is Christian faith that prompts the greatest amount of charitable giving and doing of works of mercy throughout the world. So every one of us, if we're passionate the way Jesus was passionate, we commit our life to being lifesavers and peacemakers and help givers to show that God's commands bring life. And especially, we should spread the gospel of Jesus Christ because God's command brings eternal life. And so I say before you, I want to be known for being passionate for Jesus. To have given my life and lived my life to be like Jesus. To have been empowered by his Holy Spirit and have done it all for the glory of God. How about you? Will you find your passion in the passion of Christ? Let's pray. Oh, Father God. Lord, church is an amazing and yet sometimes unpredictable thing. Your Bible is filled with promises and commandments, stories, insights into you and who you are. And Lord, we often 
are tempted, especially when we live in chaotic times, to just want to be encouraged and feel good about ourselves. But Lord, I pray that my friends, my family, will know that sometimes the uncomfortable is actually the greatest gift that you can give us. Lord, this passage isn't meant to scare us. It's meant to call us. You didn't come to condemn us. You came to save us. And so you passionately plead with us to trust you. And so I pray that if there's anybody here or home, online, wherever they might be watching and they don't know you, that they will feel safe, prompted, eager, desperate to come and talk to myself or someone and ask how they can know that Jesus Christ is their Savior and God their Father. And I pray for Christians. Lord, all these young people that are living here in 2021, with all the tensions and the constant presence of Big Brother, with all of the social media, where everything they say and do is taken in and out of context and plastered everywhere and they live with such enormous pressure that they would realize the freedom and the safety of trusting Jesus Christ to show them God, to give them the words of God and point them to God. So Lord, help us as Christians to be passionate about what Jesus was passionate about. Passionate about the gospel, passionate about God's people, passionate about your glory. And so, Lord, as we finish this service and we move into another week, may we not just put this aside, compartmentalize it. May we not just just get busy doing life as we know it. Chris, Father, pretty soon you'll be 50 years old or 60 years old and wonder, what's been the sum total of my life? And, Lord, I pray that every man and woman here at home would hear the words, I love you. I died for you. I lived for you. I will point you to the way. And Lord, help us as Christians to passionately live that and share that with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name.